This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. I guess I should start with I never thought I would be standing here today. Uh, I was born in New York. Uh, my parents were uh, born in China. And they um, met in Toronto because my grandfather was a minister, and my dad at the time was looking for nice girls, and it happened to be at church picnics. So him and his friends would go to church picnics, and he found my mom, who was the only child, and she played the organ and the piano, and had a great singing voice. Taught piano lesson uh, uh, Sunday school. And so he became infatuated with her. Uh, my grandfather moved to Manhattan, and uh, my dad went down uh, with her. And after she graduated from CCNY, uh, my mom said, "It's now or never." And so my dad, being the smart guy he was, he said, "Okay." And they got married, and they settled uh, in New York. Um, they had me um, back in 1966. So you can tell how old I am. And back then,、uh, they both were working in Yonkers. My dad had his first job with General Foods, and my mom was a substitute teacher. And my, I stayed with my grandparents in Chinatown for the first four years until they saved up money and bought their first home、uh, in Great Neck, Long Island. So, any of you come from New York? Yeah. So. Great Neck is a, a beautiful、um, community. They had great public schools, and that's why my parents chose Great Neck. And I grew up,、um, you know, walking to school and、um, going to, you know, elementary school, and then we all went to the same junior high and high school, Great Neck North. And then、uh, Dean Brady asked, "How did you end up in Rochester?"、Um, and so. My parents did not want me to get on a plane.、Um, they said I could go anywhere as long as I could drive there, and usually within five or six hours is is a manageable、uh, distance. And so I picked Rochester because they had a co-op program, a paid co-op program.、Um, I could play tennis, even though it was really cold and we didn't play for very long outside. We played in this bubble.、Um, <clears throat> Uh, and、um, it was just a really、um, nice place that I could、uh, take the courses, so I can sit for my CPA exam、um, after or during my undergrad. And so I did my two co-ops with Ernst and Winnie in the Trust and Estate Department in Manhattan. And after I graduated, they offered me a job. But by this time, my parents said we're moving to San Francisco because my grandfather.、Um, Moved to a church in the Sunset District, and my parents said, "Okay, come on out." And I interviewed all over, and I decided to stay with Ernst and Winnie in the real estate tax group. So worked for five years,、um, got my master's of taxation through Golden Gate University,、um, got all of my hours, and got licensed as a CPA. And then I decided to leave、uh, and start my own practice.、Um, I was 28 years old, and I. Was networking for clients, and someone tapped me on the shoulder and said, "Miss Ma, if you want to get clients quickly, you should be president of this small business association. It's a nonprofit. We're not going to pay you.、Uh, it's not going to be a lot of work because we're going to help you. 
And back then, I was very gullible. I was eager to start my practice. And being president of the Asian Business Association actually became uh, more than a full-time job. And it became more because I was very interested in representing small businesses uh, at the local level, going down to uh, the Board of Supervisors, going to Sacramento to testify, uh, also going to Washington, D.C. back then. President Bill Clinton invited uh, about 1,000 small business owners to uh, let, us know, let him know what some of the top issues were. And I became very like, obsessed with representation. There weren't a lot of women in politics, uh, not a lot of people that looked like me, Asian, back then. Uh, and small business owners, although we say they're the backbone of the economy, it is really, really tough to operate a small business here in California. And so I would go back to my parents and say, Mom and Dad, thank you for your sacrifice, but um, I don't think my calling was to sit and do tax returns uh, all my life, and I really want to run for office. So as you can imagine, my parents were not happy with me. They said, you're a CPA, right? You, you have a master's and a bachelor's. Why are you doing this? Um, we would like you to go get your MBA. And so I said, OK went to uh, Pepperdine and went to the executive MBA program 18 months later. My parents said, okay, so you're going to come back to your senses. And I said, well, I still want to run for office. And they said, well, you're 34 years old. We'd like you to get married. <laughs> your brother is waiting to get married. And I said, okay. So I found a nice guy, got married. <laughs> My parents were really happy. Uh, but then I still said, Mom and Dad, I really want to run for office. Just let me try and let me do something for me. And so they said, all right, fine. You want to go do that? We're going to move to Las Vegas. <laughs> and they left. And that's because they didn't want to pay taxes, my dad said. And they were kind of tired of the fog. And um, they also uh, moved into a 55 up senior facility, one of the, um, what are they called, the nice beautiful communities now, um, Sun City uh, facilities. Um, and the other reason is they wanted to get my sister out of the house as well. So I think it all worked in their favor, and they moved, and I was able to run for office, and I ran for the San Francisco Board of Supervisors against seven other people. Um, I worked harder, I think, than anybody else. Uh, this is my fourth elected position. I haven't lost yet. And that's because I don't want my parents to say, I told you so. <laughs> and number two, I hope I never have to go back and do people's taxes again. <laughs> so here I am, right, as the state treasurer of the fifth largest economy. And I have to tell you, my parents, my dad especially, finally has not said, why don't you go back and be a CPA with one of the big four accounting firm, firms and make more money. He is finally happy that I am the state treasurer. So, <clears throat> I always talk to young people, and you know, a lot of young people, I'm always like, what do you want to do? Do you know what you want to do when you grow up? And they said no. And I go, how many of your, you have parents that want you to be a lawyer, engineer, accountant, or a doctor? And everybody puts their hand up. And I say, listen to your parents. They are, you know, they want what's best for you. But hopefully, if, as you are pursuing your passions and what makes you happy, 
you know, your life will come full circle and everything will make sense. And so as your estate treasurer, being a CPA, actually under, having an understanding about business and finances and balance sheets and the economy and corporations, um, it's actually been uh, really helpful. And I've enjoyed myself because I'm able to use both sides of my brain, right? $2 trillion goes through my office. We manage about, Tim, $90 billion in bonds. I think we're at $94 billion in short-term investments. Uh, and we do manage Berkeley's money. So thank you. We want to let you know that your money is safe in LAIF. Right? Um, and Beside that, I've got a great team of, of folks who are super, super committed uh, to the state and our financial health. Everyone that is in my office has to be fingerprinted. Um, that's how serious um, we are about making sure whoever is working at the treasurer's office um, has that integrity uh, and is not messing around with um, the state's finances. Then on the other side, thanks to Jess Unruh. Any of you remember Jess Unruh? Jess Unruh was the speaker uh, in the state assembly, and then he ran for state treasurer. And when he got there, he probably said, hmm, it's a little bit boring over here just managing all that money. It's like, I want to get into policy. So the treasurer's office today chairs 16 different boards and committees. And I sit on at least 10 different uh, important um, other financial boards. So in essence, I can pretty much muck around in anything that is happening at the state because we either provide grants, loans, or bonds for everything, whether it's uh, affordable housing, schools, hospitals, green energy, pollution control, transportation, right? And so I can show up anywhere. Uh, I can work with anyone. And I always tell people, if you invite me, I will come. And it's been a great job learning uh, firsthand what folks are doing, uh, trying to promote all the good policies and, and, and companies and industries that are here, trying to entice them to come here uh, to California, because I know that we are uh, competitive, but then trying to keep people here, whether you're starting a business, whether you're growing a business, or even luring people back uh, to California is also one of my top priorities. And I think it's working. Uh, Fitch Credit Rating Agency just upgraded us from AA minus to AA. And I think that is because of our um, strength of our economy here, the fiscal restraint that Governor Jerry Brown showed in really uh, paying down all our debt, putting $20 billion into the rainy day fund, uh, and letting the world know that California is open for business, but we are also going to try to remain competitive in this new global economy. Governor Gavin Newsom gets elected, same time I did last November. We both started January 7th. Uh, we worked together on the San Francisco Board of Supervisors for a year before he became the mayor. And so we have worked together for a very long time. And the governor is um, very forward-thinking. He sets big goals. He is like the pace setter. Um, and all of us you know, are supposed to follow as quickly as we can. 
but it's a good thing that I have that same type of pace that he does. So I'm always pushing my office, sometimes to the chagrin of my office that tells me to slow down a little bit. But um, he has set a goal of 3.5 million new homes by 2025. And as many of us know, that are in the housing industry, um, looking for affordable housing, want our kids or our grandkids to live here in the Bay Area, uh, it is really, really expensive. And it's expensive because we have a supply and demand problem here in the state. And so my office is right now going through a reg reform process to streamline our processes to try to make sure that we are going to help uh, build those houses so that we can keep more of our next generation here, as well as attract more businesses to California. Um, but I'm going to open it up. Do you want to do our little um, fireside chat? You're sitting there. Okay. And, and then I'm if you have any here. questions, please write them down on, I guess, the, uh, the cards, and please we will continue. Questions. To... Okay. So please sit down. Um, and I'm going to start by asking you, since we have tremendous needs for infrastructure, and we were talking earlier about the UC campuses, which just went through a new seismic examination, and it turns out a lot of our buildings that we thought were safe are right. no longer as safe as we thought. So we're going to have literally billions of dollars of new uh, campus construction that's going to be necessary. How do you, and you don't have to confine this just to the UCs, but how do you see California? capability to actually provide the infrastructure that we so desperately need, not just with campuses, but also with water and transportation and so forth. Yeah, so um, the people of California are very generous uh, in terms of passing initiatives uh, for the important projects, the large infrastructure projects. And I know in the uh, waning hours of the legislature on Friday, we will see a $15 billion bond uh, that is going to fund infrastructure um, improvements on the college campuses, UC, CSU, K through 12, as well as community college. Um, so if that passes, hopefully that'll ease your mind a little bit and you'll be able to sleep a little bit better. Um, so that is one way. Uh, secondly, we have been refunding uh, bonds at a very aggressive uh, level and there is a big appetite for investors to invest in especially the double tax exempt bonds here in California. And so we have been successful in selling those bonds and saving uh, probably um, close to $2 billion over the next 15 years. And if the rates stay the way they are, then perhaps we will be saving um, more money uh, for that. But it's also how much money is in the budget uh, to be able to use for um, infrastructure um, and whether it's the priority of the legislature uh, to also prioritize that. Do, do you see areas where we really need to think about financing more uh, bonds to help solve infrastructure problems? Or the, you, you mentioned housing, and I'd actually like to know more about those programs. But in general, what are some of the other areas that we need to be focused on? Yeah, um, you know, the big, obviously, bridges um, are important. Roadways um, require a lot of uh, funding, as well as transportation. Mm -hmm. And as congestion is getting worse and people are sitting in their cars longer and our focus is on reducing, you know, uh, um, uh, tailpipe emissions and all the things that go with climate change, um, being able to put more money into public transportation is also, I think, going to be a priority for uh, many of us. Do you think the state is equipped... <laughs> 
to have mechanisms, for example, in the public transportation, or does that have to involve local governments, or how is that going to work exactly? Well, I think it's a combination. Um, whether, you know, way back when, I think uh, governments, um, either the state government, federal government had a lot of money to put into transportation. Uh, local governments also pass initiatives. And now I think we really need to look at public-private partnerships. Uh, one of the projects that um, is planning to come to California is Virgin Trains. Uh, they have bought the line from Victorville to Las Vegas. And they are going to fund it by going out to the market to sell bonds, but they need to come to the state for some bond cap allocation so that they could sell private uh, tax-exempt private activity bonds. So that is an example of a public-private partnership um, that I think is, is going to be the model moving forward. Now, I understand Las Vegas is one of the ends of that line, but Victorville, I, I, with all due respect to Victorville, I've been there. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't strike me as a population center. So what's the idea that people from Los Angeles would get up to the uh, up there to, to the upper desert and then get the train? Well, for those that want to go to Vegas and are driving, they're going to still um, want to go to Vegas. Mm. You know, the Raiders, for example, moved to Vegas, so maybe some Raider fans. Um, but, yes, so that would be um, getting people off the roads. But I just went to meet with the city manager and elected officials from Apple Valley as well as Victorville, and they have been waiting for this train, okay, this Desert Express. Not because it's a train to Vegas, but uh, it's an economic stimulator for their economy. Um, More jobs will come uh, to the area, high-paying jobs. More people are going to need housing, so they're going to have a plan for uh, more housing. But... They also feel like it gives them flexibility uh, to be able to, you know, either work in Las Vegas, people that want to come from Las Vegas to work uh, perhaps or live uh, on the California side. So the train also offers opportunity for mobility. I'm still not quite sure I understand how people are going to get to Victorville, but I assume maybe they're going to drive there Mm. and then they'll or. Yes, yes. Initially, they're going to drive, but. The plan is, after Victorville, it goes to Palmdale. Okay. And then Palmdale, I want them to go to Bakersfield, because that's where the high-speed train is is being built right now. And then their plan is obviously to go to Los Angeles. Okay. Or at least maybe into the valleys there. Yes. Near San Bernardino or something like that. That'd be great. So tell us about housing. What kind of programs do you have, and how do you feel like you're attacking that problem? Um, Well... The governor set a goal, mm-hmm. and he also allocated uh, more money, uh, for example, for multi-family uh, workforce housing. And so our job right now is to, like, come up with the regulations to get that money out. Mm-hmm. Um, so streamlining government, I think, is al- always a challenge. And if we have leaders at the state who are thinking uh, a little bit more about how business runs, that time is money, versus time means retirement, um, that I think is going to help. And everybody kind of needs to get on board. Everyone needs to come out of their corner because right now in terms of building housing, we have folks in different corners that just stare at each other and say, you know what, 
don't, you know, uh, not on my watch or this is my turf, but everybody kind of has to compromise um, in the next at least 10 years if we're going to meet these goals. So what kind of housing do you think the financing will be for? Is this going to be uh, multi-unit rentals or uh, condominiums or will it be single family housing or what, what kind of structures? Yeah, um, for, for us, because um, we finance the 9% and the 4% affordable housing tax credits, uh, we are really focused on multifamily housing. Um, workforce housing is, is an issue. Affordable housing uh, for mental health um, through our um, No Place Like Home um, funding that is going to go for formerly homeless, you know, um, more on-site services, transition to get people into permanent housing. But one of the things I want to focus on is senior housing. So right now I've been living with my parents for the last 10 plus years. I don't have kids, so I don't know who's going to take care of me. Um, But if we are going to live till 95, uh, socialization is going to be very important, making sure that we have homes that are in communities that are accessible and walkable to restaurants, to stores, to your pharmacy, to your doctor, uh, I think is going to be important. So um, I am seeing that more of the affordable housing developers are really focused on providing senior housing uh, and more robust uh, community living uh, type arrangements. And integrated housing, so it would start out with sort of entry level and then maybe become assisted living and so on and so forth? Because there's sort of stages that people sometimes go through. Right. There are stages. And you have to build housing to um, be equipped for those. Like if you break your hip, right, you need different types of uh, uh, amenities in your bathroom, in your home. And so a lot of the homes, um, the apartments that are being built, they're thinking about those amenities to move people from right independent living to more of an assisted living type of a situation, and then hopefully keep them in their homes for as long as possible. So now, one of the fascinating things you've been working on is, I was going to say you've become a drug lord, but that's probably not a fair way to describe it, but you've been involved in trying to figure out how banking should work for people who are setting up marijuana enterprises. And so you have become a banker or figuring out ways that they can have safe harbors. Can you explain more what's necessary there and what the problems are? Yeah. Um, So when I got elected to the State Board of Equalization as your friendly tax collector, um, we were supposed to collect uh, taxes on the dispensaries under Prop 215. And Prop 215 was the medicinal um, bill, and I just thought it was a medicine. So like most medicines or pharmaceutical drugs, we don't pay taxes on it. But I think in order to pass the initiative, they put in there that dispensaries would pay sales taxes. So as I was going around trying to figure out how much money we were collecting, um, which was not um, that much, um, I started talking to the dispensaries and trying to educate them on their tax responsibility. And it became very clear the reason many of them are not in the legal system or paying their fair share of taxes is because they don't have access to banks or the banking system. And so this whole um, industry has been kind of working in the underground for all these years. Um, There's no rules. There's no regulations. There's no research. um, There's no agency that oversees them. So they have been trying to abide by the existing rules and regulations to the best they could. And if they were lucky enough to get a bank account, great. But you can only deposit so much cash 
uh, into a bank account before the banks start asking, where did this money come from? And if it's from cannabis, then they pretty much shut down your account. So Is that partly because of federal <coughs> regulations and fear of federal involvement? Yes, yeah. yes. so okay. cannabis is still considered a federal one right. uh, narcotic drug, um, and so you cannot right open up a bank account easily, but the government still wants you to pay your taxes. taxes. Like, we don't care whether you're legal or not, just pay your taxes. <laughs> So I always say the state of California. Well, how did they get Al Capone ultimately? Well, it was exa- on his taxes. Exactly. <laughs> so everybody knows, pay your taxes. But the state of California probably collects the most amount of cannabis taxes. So in the in the uh, whole country. So I always joke that we're probably the largest, um, you know, tax evader or um, you know money launderer in the country, mm-hmm. the state of California, because we want everyone to pay their taxes. But it is. Uh, um, it's really a backward system, the way we audit these dispensaries. We stand outside and count for three days how many people go in and then add a dollar amount. Then Do you watch extrapolate. them if they come out to see how stoned they look? Uh, uh, no, that may, that no, might be another no, indicator. They can't get stoned because you can't consume <laughs> you can't on, on the campuses, okay, so right? You so you can only know. buy and leave. <laughs> so they don't spend that much time in there. So let, let's just assume they you know, spend $65 a person. We extrapolate back three years. We send them a bill plus interest and penalties, and we hope that they pay okay. in cash. Right. There you go. In, in paper bags. Okay. Yes. I mean, that's it's fascinating story about the complexity of doing this in California under federal law and the kinds of difficulties yeah. that it creates. So another thing you've been pushing for that I think was just signed is to tax Amazon and, and other online uh, providers of goods the same kind of sales tax they would for sort of uh, standard retailers brick, in your local community. Right. Um, so that was another thing I encountered uh, on the tax board is that every sale that Amazon made in the state of California, um, they either collected no state and local tax because they are considered a third-party provider for all of these small businesses that are on their platform to sell for them, or if it was, if it was one of their products, they would only collect the state portion. So no local taxes uh, went uh, for any where it was collected for any um, um, purchase on Amazon. Uh, so we worked really hard to get a law passed this year, where now Amazon will be collecting the state and local tax, and local governments will be getting um, their share of revenues. How do you get the local tax back to the local area? You know the address of the person who bought yes, the person exactly. the, the product, so yep. that's what you use to right. figure out that that's where they. They, yeah. The tax goes back to. Yeah. Um, so tell us a bit about one of the things you've been focused on is trying to improve especially local government's ability to deal with financial matters. And we know that many local governments are very small. Uh, they may not be well run. Uh, and they may face real financial problems right. but not really know a lot about how to deal with that. Can you say something about what the Treasurer's Office is trying to do? I know one thing yes. you're trying to do is collect data, so you might start there with the data yes. collection. Yes, so um, we are, have been working on trying to create a dashboard uh, of state and um, state, mostly state and special districts that are out there um, just to see what their financial health is. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, everybody should be doing well because we've been doing well as a state and we have a surplus and the economy is doing well. Um, so you would expect that you would see um, a lot of 
cities uh, and special districts doing well. But I know anecdotally that many are concerned and elected local elected officials are also concerned because many of them don't understand how to read the budget, right? And they're dependent on their city manager to tell them whether things are good or not. And then you have the pressure from the community to build more, you know, parks and, and bike lanes and, um, you know, build more libraries. And so unless someone tells them that, hey, you can't really afford it right now, or maybe you should refinance some of your existing debt um, or pay down some of, you know, of your unfunded liability, um, you know, someone needs to be that adult in the room, and we are hoping that the treasurer's office uh, either um, collecting the data ourselves or working with some of these companies that have already been uh, doing these open gov platforms mm-hmm. um, to be able to provide that guidance and assistance if they need it. Because like you said, some of these cities have a city manager that they share with five or six different cities. And they're not really sure whether, you know, hey, are we doing well or not? Um, we, everyone talks about unfunded liabilities, uh, but they're really not sure. Is it manageable or is it not manageable? Um, if we go into a recession, is, how is that going to affect our finances? And so we're hoping um, to be up and running maybe by, um, or at least a pilot by first quarter of next year. So is it hard to get these data from some of these units, that, and, and is it hard to put it all together? I mean, I assume that it's in different forms. Some of it must be still uh, just paper documents, and some of it presumably is computer systems and different kinds of computer systems. Exactly. And so Tim Schaefer, uh, my chief deputy, probably um, is, um, is is better able to answer that, but all cities, counties, special districts have to get audited, and so they are audited, whether the information is apples to apples from each uh, um, city or or jurisdiction. Um, it's, It's not, probably. Some are, some probably aren't, and so you have to kind of pull data from different um, sources uh, to put together this meaningful dashboard. Do you worry that uh, one of the things that we notice in the modern world is that journalism is having trouble in in terms of its financial model? So a lot of local papers are going by the wayside. And local papers used to be the places where they would send a reporter to the local city council meeting and maybe uncover some of the difficulties that a city was having. There's not that monitoring system available anymore. So it seems to me that there's got to be some thought about who's going to now monitor these local districts and these local cities and make sure that, in fact, they're doing things on the up and up. And there's been some famous examples in the state of California, uh, Bell in Southern California, which you probably know about, where there was an enormous amount of uh, corruption going on with the city manager getting a ridiculous salary and all sorts of monies being funneled to him and other people. Uh, So this kind of thing can happen if nobody's scrutinizing what folks are doing. So do you see that as a role for the treasurer's office to try to become Yeah, I mean, absolutely, because we do sell bonds Mm -hmm. and um, we work with many of the, um, you know, public finance um, uh, companies that are also selling bonds at the local level. And so I think many people know kind of behind the scenes what's going on, but they don't necessarily want to say it publicly. And unless there's a scandal or anonymous complaints, you know, whistleblowers that are willing to talk 
um, about an issue, uh, that's when we can go in and uncover. And so that's what happened with Bell is that people complained and, you know, but it took gave a us while. information. It, it took I mean, a while. It's a pretty awful story, and it's really worrisome about a lot of these communities that don't have anybody watching them. It is. And the controller's office does have the ability to audit mm-hmm. um, these jurisdictions. But to do an audit takes two years. Mm-hmm. And so when you say, yeah, there's a problem, but someone needs to go and audit, and that takes a while to go in and audit, and then by the time they're done and they issue their report, it's like three years down the road, and either things got better or things got worse. Um, so, you know, we do need a better system. Yeah, and in fact, you see, you're, you're talking about a dashboard. Is that something that'll be available to folks outside the treasurer's office? At well, least researchers, perhaps? Well, Right now, I think we have Bond Watch on our website, so people can see uh, how much debt um, um, each jurisdiction has, but that's only regarding debt. So mm-hmm. eventually, you know, I believe in a more open and transparent government. government. So yes, that's what I would like um, to see so that other people can also see what's happening and, and hold, uh, you know, folks accountable um, that are in those roles. And it seems like that's the kind of mechanism we will need as journalists may not be available to be watching exactly. things, and so perhaps people on the Internet could be yeah. available to watch yeah. things. Um, you said there's a lot of commissions and organizations that are attached to the, uh, your, uh, your uh, Treasury uh, Department. What Can you say something about some of the ones that you find most intriguing and interesting or maybe even just arcane and odd? Uh... Well, um, the California Earthquake Authority, okay. uh, I'm, I have a seat on that. And, you know, when there's an earthquake, everybody goes out and buys our earthquake insurance. Um, but when there's a, not an earthquake, um, then people kind of forget and say, well, maybe I, I don't need to, to, to buy it. Um, but we are trying to figure out how we can expand some of our services to maybe wildfires, as we have been talking about the many wildfires. Uh, I sit on the CalPERS and CalSTRS boards. Anybody a CalPERS or CalSTRS member? Yes? So you probably follow what's going on and, and watch our monthly meetings, but um, trying to make sure that we hit our 7% rate of return uh, I think is, is crucially important. Uh, my mother was a teacher and you know, had a pension, a small pension, uh, until she passed. But, you know, that little amount of money uh, on top of the Social Security that she received was, was crucial um, to her. Um, I sit on iBank, uh, which also finances uh, many projects. Uh, Cal HFA, which is another housing finance authority. Um, and then my other... Uh, the ones that are directly under my jurisdiction, um, I have small business loans um, that we can help the community with. Uh, we can uh, help with seismic safety, retrofits, electric vehicle charging stations. So if you want to install an electric vehicle at your home or at your company or perhaps at your school or communities, we can help with that. Um, we also invest about $5 billion in local uh, community banks and credit unions, and we are working to expand uh, that pool of banks so that they would reinvest more money back into their communities. So we have a lot of different economic tools uh, and programs um, that we offer uh, to. Um, I'm sure if I talked to you long enough, I could entice you uh, and interest you in something that I could help you with. Right. 
Great. Thank you. So we have the Berkeley Forum uh, folks here, and they have some questions they'd like to ask. And please come up here. And I'm hoping that will work. Yes. Hello. Um, good evening, Ms. Ma, and on behalf of the Berkeley Forum, thank you so much for being here today. Um, I have a couple of questions that I'd like to ask you, um, just based on some issues that you've been vocal about in the past. Um, so one issue that you voiced concerns about is the funding for CalPERS and CalSTRS, especially in terms of the share that local governments are required to add to those funds. Given past local funding issues, how, if at all, do you aim to support local governments in contributing their share to these pension funds? Yeah, um, so uh, the governor, um, Jerry Brown, uh, passed, I think, in 2012 and 2014 uh, a, a number of different pension reforms um, so that we could adjust uh, not only um, to the demographics, but also um, adjust some of the funding formulas uh, that are happening. Um, so we, uh, the state passed um, a 7% goal uh, a rate of return for the state, and I am watching. I just was at a CalPERS investment committee meeting today uh, to make sure that we are hitting that 7% goal, um, because if we are, that means local governments know what their share is, as well as uh, current and retired employees know what their share is. So it is important that we at CalPERS and CalSTRS hit that 7% goal because that actually creates more stability um, for local governments. Um, what was your question? Um, so um, essentially, what do you think um, uh, What do you think that you'd like to do specifically to offer support to local governments in terms of their funding for these pension plans? Yeah, so um, you know, I'm, I'm very sensitive because I did come from local government and that was my first elected position, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. And for local governments, uh, they have to balance every year. So whatever revenues they get, um, that's the amount of expenses um, that they can expend. At the state level, we have the luxury of bonds, uh, of you know, different type of credit, um, uh, credit instruments um, if we run out of money, which is what happened uh, during the Great Recession. And then the federal government has even more um, uh, leeway because they can actually print money when they run out of money. Uh, so. I'm very sensitive to making sure that we do all we can to uh, um, inform and create a safe, um, secure budget for local governments. Um, so I know some people talk about uh, reducing the rate of return uh, at CalPERS and CalSTRS. Um, I'm very sensitive to that, and I want to make sure that local governments can actually afford um, whatever it is that we are doing at the state level, because I do believe that the state has more flexibility in terms of funding opportunities versus um, putting all of the burden on local governments to uh, figure out how to balance a budget if they're not prepared to. So another issue that's garnered support from more progressive voters is the platform that you ran on during the 2018 election that you touched on earlier regarding affordable housing. However, many students find it difficult to gain access to such housing, especially in university towns. What solutions do you think can be implemented from a state policy level to help alleviate this issue? 
Um, so there are a lot of legislators right now working on affordable housing um, bills. Um, Nancy Skinner, your local uh, senator, um, just uh, recently passed a bill, hopefully to um, help build affordable housing a little bit uh, quicker. Um, it also depends on the communities, whether the communities want more housing, um, whether they allow more housing, um, that is also a factor. But I want to also focus um, housing on the college campuses, whether it's UC, CSU, or the community colleges now um, that are seeing folks like you that you know can't afford, right? It's expensive to go to school, and then now you have to pay for housing and food and all the other expenses. Um, but if we could build more housing that is associated with the universities and keep costs low or reduce fees, um, I think that's also going to be very helpful for students. Um, we are also working on um, a bill next year to refinance student loan debt. Um, so look for that. Um, but that's going to be my next initiative. And then always encouraging uh, families to save for their, um, their kids through the ScholarShare 529 plan, which is administered by my office, uh, as well as the new program that um, started this year, CalSavers. So for any business that does not offer a pension plan to their employees, uh, they will eventually have to sign up with our CalSavers program, and it will be professionally managed by my office. It's almost like a Roth IRA, but it will stay with the employee as they move from job to job. Um, so there's no responsibility or liability on behalf of the employers, which is becoming you know, more and more uh, of an issue as uh, small business owners try to expand or businesses try to expand. Thank you once again, Treasurer Ma. And that's all for my questions on behalf of the Berkeley Forum. Um, I think I'll now be passing it along again for audience questions. Thank, thank, thank you. you. Okay. Thank and you. Thank you for great questions. They, they were great. Thank you. Um, so this actually gets partly at how you see your role as Treasurer. What are your thoughts on Prop 13 reform? What role do you think you should be playing in that, if any? And what difference do you think it'll make uh, if it is gets on the ballot and then what it, it maybe passes and maybe doesn't. Who knows? Yeah. So, um, so we, um, when we were in the legislature, we tried to make some reforms to Prop 13. Uh, any accountants here in the room or tax lawyers? No? Okay, so um, in order to trigger a revaluation of property, um, there has to be a 50 plus one change of ownership. And as a tax accountant, we know how to manipulate that number so that you don't have to trigger a reinvestment. But that is not right. And so we... And um, this works mostly for corporations. Exactly. Whereas homeowners typically don't no, avail no, themselves of that kind not of Not homeowners, but, but so it's... homeowners... Homeowners and investors right. um, that are um, investing, they don't trigger the revaluation. Yeah. Um, so that has been something we have uh, been working on. But I think... Prop 13, out of all the initiatives we passed in the state of California, everybody knows Prop 13, right? And everybody is very sensitive to their property taxes, uh, especially now the Bay Area, the home prices are going up. And without Prop 13, for some folks here, maybe in this room, uh, they may not be able to stay in their homes. And so I'm a big supporter for Prop 13 for homeowners. Um, but when you try to explain 
residential and homeowners, it gets lost in the conversation and then it becomes the camel's nose under the tent, where if you're going to change it for commercial property owners, <coughs> then what next? So that is always the, um, you know, the, uh, the controversy when it comes to Prop 13 and talking about Prop 13. Do you see yourself uh, in your role as somebody who can talk about these issues, or do you think that's outside your portfolio? Well, I, I've tried to, I can talk about anything, and I, I will talk about okay. anything. If you know me, I, I, I'll come and talk about uh, other issues not related to the treasurer's office. Uh, but when I go and talk about Prop 13 to communities, um, I'm People are very, very sensitive to their property taxes, uh, and especially as we are living longer um, and trying to stay in our homes. Uh, many folks can't move out of their homes because of the higher property taxes they would have to pay, as well as the capital gains they would have to pay if they sold their home. So you have also many folks who are staying in their homes because they just can't afford uh, to move at this moment. So I prefer not to talk about Prop 13, but talk about, hey, bringing more tax revenues in through cannabis. Um, we were trying to bring in a billion dollars of taxes, and I think we've only uh, brought in 700 million uh, this year, so there is a lot of money that we should be um, collecting from the industry, uh, closing the loophole on the internet sales taxes, like the Amazon tax. That's supposed to bring in a billion dollars uh, more into our coffers, so I would rather work on you know, bringing more money into the coffers uh, versus you know, talking about um, property taxes for individuals. Got it. So uh, this questioner says that you're the first CalSTRS board member to endorse uh, divesting the teacher's pension fund from fossil fuels. Um, do you think that similar things should be proposed for CalPERS, which is the other big pension yes. fund? Yes. Um, so I was really inspired by these young folks uh, from Berkeley and Oakland who have been coming to the CalSTRS meetings asking us to divest from fossil fuels. And they're asking for $6 billion out of a, what, $250 billion portfolio. That's not very, very big. Um, but I appreciate and um, really value their passion and their commitment to climate change to their generation and their grandkids' generation. And I think these young people are the moral um, conscious for some of us who maybe are jaded. Um, maybe we say it can't be done. And I'll tell you at CalPERS and CalSTRS, uh, they really don't want me to step out and say, hey, maybe we should divest from fossil fuels. But I also wear my elected official hat uh, where I am also you know, accountable to my constituents. And many of them do believe that science is uh, in our favor, that climate change is real, and that we should be doing what we can to protect our environment, um, uh, especially here in California. So um, I did stand with the kids. Um, I still stand with the kids. I went to visit them at their school, and they peppered me Trust me, these young people, 11, 12-year-olds, they all had questions for me. Every one of them, there were like 14 of them in the room. And then you had the parents that wanted to ask me questions too. Um, but it was uh, um, a very honest dialogue. Uh, they understand what's going on. They want the adults to get on board. And I don't know, I'm just... 
Well, there's, there's two different arguments, it seems to me, people make for divestiture. One is just that it's the right thing to do because there's climate change and we should tell the fossil fuel industry that we think that they're doing a bad thing. Uh, but there's also a prudential argument that sometimes people put forth, which is that the fossil fuel industry is headed ultimately for collapse at some point because, in fact, we are going to have to deal with climate change. And as we deal with climate change, those stocks will go down in value. Exactly. So and, what, what about that argument? Right. And, and putting my fiduciary hat comes uh, you know, on many levels. Uh, one of the mandates is we're supposed to look after our long-term uh, investments and the viability really? for the fund. And like you said, I believe when companies do the right thing um, with the ESG uh, governance principles, uh, environmental, social, and, and governance, I think in the long run, these companies are going to, um, to, to do better. They're going to be more profitable. Um, employees are going to be happier working for them, so they'll have less turnover. And with the pressure that everybody is you know, putting on this industry, if they're not willing to get on board and start moving toward sustainable um, uh, investments, then then we shouldn't be investing in them, you know, condoning bad behavior. So here's a question that shows that we're definitely near Silicon Valley. It's, is your office developing a policy regarding blockchain applications for cryptocurrency or otherwise? Yes, yes. So blockchain is, is very interesting, and I uh, have to do 80 hours of CPE uh, to keep my CPA license. And so one of the books I read was, you know, cryptocurrencies and blockchain. And I read it and I thought it was fascinating because blockchain and cryptocurrencies came about because people didn't want to be known. Um, They wanted to hide their assets. They didn't want to be in the banking system. Uh, They didn't want governments to actually track them. And as we were talking about the cannabis industry, kind of the same thing. You have an industry that actually wants to bank, but they can't. And so I was going down saying, well, maybe blockchain would be an option for them until, you know, we fix the, uh, the banking system. But because cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin uh, has really put a, kind of a negative connotation uh, to cryptocurrency, People go, oh, you know, we can't be gambling, you know, with government's money and, you know, cryptocurrency, you know, goes up and down. But you can also peg cryptocurrency to the dollar um, so that it doesn't, you know, fluctuate or or devalue uh, depending on what the market is. So I do think blockchain uh, in this era of hacking and cybersecurity, I think blockchain is going to be an alternative and many companies I know are moving on to blockchain. But it's the cryptocurrency um, that I think is going to take a little bit longer to uh, grasp on to, and especially in government, you know, that's a little, I think, too much for government to handle, like cryptocurrency. I think a lot of economists think that it's a bit uh, uh, of a scam right now, that it's not really necessarily going to be successful. But blockchain is another thing because it's really a way to make sure that chains of transactions are authentic. And so it seems to me that's an important thing for accounting and and for just running an economy to make sure that you have a good chain of investments and so forth. Yeah. And there's a number of 
um, legislators who understand blockchain and propose blockchain mm -hmm. uh, bills, but unfortunately they got stuck because I don't think enough people understand the value of blockchain. Great. Um, is there anything about your office that you want people to know about that uh, is sort of a cool thing you do or an interesting thing you do that you don't think most people would realize that you do? Cool. Tim, what, what do you think is cool? That, that's a question here, so I'm paraphrasing it, but basically. Oh, yes, of course, because it's under his jurisdiction, selling the bonds. <laughs> okay. Um, so, and I, I know I have some underwriters here. Uh, but selling the bonds is sometimes uh, a timing issue depending on what's happening in the market. And two weeks ago, we did sell a refunding uh, GO bond, about $2.3 billion. And we're just never sure, you know, what Twitter is going to say that day, right? Um, and so going to the market is always challenging. It's not always predictable. But I think my office... Um, Blake uh, um, Fowler and uh, his group did a really good job of managing the bond sale in a potentially um, you know, volatile uh, market. And so the state of California is always trying to get the best um, um, you know, money that we can get when we sell bonds. And you know, I think um, selling bonds, I think, is really exciting. Tomorrow, we have a competitive sale going on. So we sell bonds two ways. We sell a competitive sale just like you uh, have a for, uh, court foreclosure, right? You go at the steps and everyone puts in their bid and the lowest bid wins. We do the same thing for some of our bonds. And then we also uh, sell negotiated bonds, so the bigger uh, dollar amounts where we actually, um, you know, name certain underwriters to uh, take, you know, the lead position or the second position and also, um, you know, be in the pool to sell bonds. So, yes, selling bonds, I think, is well, one of the most exciting things I do in my office. Yeah, it's certainly big money. Uh, how are you working on uh, trying to make sure that there's a broad range of underwriters and other people involved in bond sales and underwriting and so forth. Yeah. Uh, so we meet with everyone and anyone. And so everybody meets with us and gives us their little pitch of what they're good at or, um, you know, what other states uh, have entrusted them with or localities. Uh, and so I really try to, I think, we try to be fair. Um, we want competition. Uh, we like competition, and the only way competition is going to thrive is if people have chances. Um, if you keep picking the same underwriters, well, people are not going to come to the state anymore, and they're just going to say, you know what, we never have the opportunity. We're just going to focus on other states. So we try to, you know, keep it, um, you know, uh, um, keep it fresh, uh, change things around a little bit. Um, the competitive sales obviously gives an opportunity for folks to bid, but even the negotiated sales where we actually can uh, put people in certain um, um, places, I think that also keeps, um, keeps everybody engaged. I also like to see the governance model, um, you know, how diverse their staff is, uh, how many women um, or minorities are on corporate boards, how many employees they have here in California, um, where their principals are located. Are they living here in California and paying taxes, or are they living in other states, right? And so those are some of the things that uh, we have control of here in this office. 
So you told uh, sort of a series of funny stories about your parents and them not being sure that you should get into politics. How hard was that actually? I mean, do you feel like that was really constantly going against what your parents wanted or was that just sort of a running joke in the family, or what level was the tension? Just uh, to, to get very personal here. Yeah, I'm from yeah, yeah. Yonkers, too, by the way. Oh, so, oh you are? So, yeah, oh. I was born in Yonkers. Oh, we have a lot in common. Yonkers. Yonkers. <laughs> um, you know what? It's, it's, you know, when you have parents who, you know, all, all your life, they want you to succeed, and it's always like, okay, go out, bring, bring your report card. And as long as I got A's, straight A's, then I could do whatever I wanted. And so having the approval from my, from my parents has always been important. Um, when I got elected to my first office, my parents were like, what do you do? <laughs> okay, you're like doing cleanups, you know. And I'm like, yeah, I do cleanups. I go to neighborhood meetings, you know. But they don't understand, like, you go and you spend all this time, you don't get paid overtime, right? Um, and back then, I think we got paid, you know, a set amount of money, and my parents always say, you can get paid more money. But every race I enter, they always try to talk me into going back to the private sector, making money, uh, having a quieter life. Um, they don't understand that this is my life. Like, I like people. I like going to events. I like speaking and meeting people that I am like an uber type A personality, so I need people to like get motivated every day. And my parents don't really understand that because they're kind of quiet, and they just think it's a lot of stress on me. But, you know, it's stressful when I stay home, actually. Yeah. Well, you've certainly shown that you can do this with aplomb and with great ease and grace. So thank, thank you. you so very thank much. You. Thank, thank you, you for our, being our speaker tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.